Uh, well, good morning, everyone. Um, topic of this workshop is steps 10, 11, and 12. Um, my name is Nate. I'm one of the speakers for this workshop. The other speaker, I believe, is Shannon. Uh, this session will be interpreted simultaneously into French. If you require interpretation, please click on the interpretation symbol and choose French. Uh, and I will open with a serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, the workshop format is two speakers for 20 minutes each, and then the floor is open for a question and answer session. The audio of this session is being recorded and will not be edited. Please note that this session will be available online or as a podcast feed. Anyone wishing to remain anonymous should use a fictitious name. If you share, you have given consent to be recorded. Please do not share if you do not want to be recorded. Here is the Zoom info. Attendees are automatically muted. We ask that you keep what you see and hear here confidential and that there be no recordings or screen captures. Please respect the anonymity of all who attend. Please stop your video if you're walking around having side conversations or eating. If you want to change your view settings, click on the view button in the top right of your screen. You may choose either gallery or speaker view. We ask you to rename yourself to first name and last initial. Feel free to add your state, province, or country. Also, please note that chat is set to host only until the speakers are finished. And you can send ask it basket questions to the co-host who is the Q&A moderator. Uh, can that person identify themselves right now? Hi, my name is Phil. I'm a compulsive overeater from New York City, and you may send me your questions. And, and uh, also, uh, if you are speaking French, I could also do that. So you could send it to me in French, and I will have it translated, and we will be able to present it to our speakers. Great. Thank you, Phil. Um, <laughs> looking fabulous. I love it. Um, great. And so now uh, we'll go ahead and speak, uh, Shannon and I. Um, Shannon, would you like to go first since I've already talked a lot? Sure, I can take over. Thank you, Nate, for doing the first part. Good morning, everybody. I'm a compulsive overeater. My name is Shannon. I'm zooming in from Port Hope, Ontario, Canada. It's a beautiful sunny morning, yet a little chilly. So 10, 11, 12, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about me so that you can see that I actually belong here. And then I'll, I'll tell you um, my story with 10, 11, 12, my experiences. So my entire life, I was on a quest for three things. I wanted love, acceptance, and food. I'm a compulsive overeater from a super young age. My first food uh, overeating memory, I was five. So my entire life, that measuring tool inside me that measured that level of love, acceptance and food was broken. I, I either never uh, felt like I had enough or I didn't recognize that I had enough because if I look at my family life, I mean, we had our stuff, it wasn't all rosy, but my parents provided the basics of life. We lived in a nice clean home, we had clothes, plenty of food. I went to a nice school. Um, I come from, you know, a safe neighborhood, lower middle class, lots of young families. My mother was one of the first working moms, but she cared for us, right? I have fond memories of when I was sick and the love um, that she poured upon me and, you know, cared for me. 
Um, and as I mentioned, there was chaos in the home, for sure. There was nasty stuff happening. There was, there was like, I come from a French Canadian family and a lot of drinking, lots of partying, and it just felt like our norm, but it was chaotic at times. And the other thing from a very young age was I was always very, very sensitive. You know, if you looked at me the wrong way, right away, I went introspective. I thought I did something wrong. I said something wrong. And so, um, you know, I never, I never was able to, 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 to feel right, to be okay with what my thinking was. I always deferred to you. And it's really painful to always feel like you're wrong. So, you know, I figured out a way to not be wrong and I became the ultimate chameleon. And I did what you needed me to do so that you would like me. And that was my ultimate job growing up was making sure that I didn't make you angry, that I didn't make you disappointed in me. I couldn't handle those feelings of rejection. Remember, I'm always looking for acceptance and love. And so I'll figure out a way to get that. So I still wanted my way though. So I learned as a result to be sneaky. I learned to lie. I learned to repress what I was really feeling. I grew up in a household where I was always told that I shouldn't feel a certain way, especially if it was a negative emotion. As I said, my parents loved me to the best of their ability. They just didn't have a way to deal with my emotions. You know, so as I said, I learned to repress. I learned to lie. I learned to sneak around. Food is one of my top three quests. <laughs> so when you're five years old, you don't have a job, you don't have income. So you steal food and you steal money to get food. And um, so you can imagine, you know, doing all that is a lot of work. It's a lot of work to keep that up. I have a well that cannot be filled. I can never have enough love, enough acceptance, enough food. So I'm doing all this stuff to try to get it, to try to fill it up and I'm getting nothing in return. So I'm working super hard at getting love and acceptance and I'm not getting ahead. The quest is becoming tiring. Right, so the food came into play, that third element. That food was the one that brought me comfort, you know, when I was exhausted from all that emotional endurance that it takes to be somebody that you're not really, I go to food. You know, food danced in my mouth. Food was euphoric. It, it was, it was. I always said, if you wired me up and you put food in my mouth, it would go off, right? It's fireworks in my head when I eat certain foods. I always said, you know, the main alcoholic foods I have are sugar and crunchy foods. But you'll hear that my story is one of relapse. And so for me, it eventually became anything. As long as I'm chewing and I'm swallowing, I'm comfortable. That is my happy place. My addiction cost me a lot. You know, I never wore cute clothes like the other girls. There was no plus size stores when I was growing up. So you wore old lady scratchy clothing. You wore whatever fit. You know, my mom hated shopping with me because it ended in tears, usually hers, because I would get angry. 
when I was hurt and I was feeling ashamed, I lashed out and I got angry at my mom. She was the safest one that I could lose it with. She was the only one that I could lose it with. I couldn't do what other kids did. I can remember being in gym class and, and them wanting you to do somersaults and all that kind of stuff. Man, I almost snapped my neck. I was This body was way too heavy to support this little neck. I never dated as a teenager. I have zero experience with the opposite sex. Uh, I didn't get to practice like the other girls did. I didn't get to talk about it at slumber parties. I put on the mask and I smiled and I laughed with them, but I had no experience to share. Um, I was always scared of not fitting into chairs. Chairs with arms terrified me. I still have a minor reaction when I see them today. I was scared of breaking those chairs once I got into them. They would make noises sometimes. Um, I've had a hip replacement. You know, I was one of the youngest people there getting my hip replaced and I so wanted to lie and say I had a dramatic ski accident, but no, I'm a compulsive overeater and I've been obese the majority of my life and it took a toll on my body. I'm down an organ. I lost my gallbladder. That's uh, many, many years of really bad eating. So hopefully all that gives you a picture that I belong here. So I came into OA in 1995 at the age of 30. I was miserable. I was in a marriage that I was miserable. I had a daughter, I loved her, but I didn't know how to be her mom. I couldn't get down on the floor and play with her. Um, so when I came into OA, I released 70 found, 75 pounds twice. Uh, my current abstinence date is March 19th, 2017. So you do the math, you see I have relapse in my, in my story. Up until uh, that March 19th date, I was fighting a four-year super intense relapse. Um, the only thing that saved my life is I never left the rooms. I had been in the rooms for over 20 years and that's all I knew was to keep coming back. Thank God for that hokey slogan, <laughs> keep coming back, you know, it got me well. My relapse taught me that I have no defense against this disease. Once I start having that thought about food, I turn it into fantasy and I start remembering what that food item tastes like. And my memory makes it way better, way, way better than it ever was. And it makes it the only solution. So by the time I get into that feeling about it, I'm pooched, I'm done. There's no turning back. I really felt my powerlessness, right? I have the first edition of the 12 and 12 and it's falling apart. It's the hardcover. The binding is, is, fall, is fallen off. There's threads sticking out of it. There's different multiple colored highlights in it. It's underlined, it's noted. It didn't keep me abstinent. My knowledge did not keep me abstinent. I am really powerless over this food thing. So I, I understood that if I was to stop relapsing, I would have to do different. If I'm to get different, I need to do different. So in the spring of 2017, I went to a retreat in the, in the old Scarborough mission for my friends from, from the Toronto area. And the theme of that retreat was freedom isn't free. 
That was the first time I had heard that expression and the gentleman that was leading the retreat is here today and he knows. He peppered that weekend with that saying, freedom isn't free. And I must admit that when I first saw him, I thought I'm not gonna learn anything from this guy. We've got nothing in common. And then all that poured out of his mouth all weekend was my story. Cause he talked about the struggles of putting the food down and he talked about what it was gonna cost me to put that food down and that it was gonna have to cost me something that I was gonna have to do something. I'm learned in this program. I have two 12 and 12s. I have a lot of literature. I have binders of retreats and conventions that I've been to and that didn't get me abstinent. One of my favorite readings is in the for today, it's November 2nd. And it says freedom isn't free, it costs something. The source of all the blessings I have received today needs my support to stay alive and strong. So that source, that, that inner strength, the higher power, the God, that inner light, whatever you wanna call it, it needs my support to stay alive. It needs me to remember that it's there. I was told that that strength, that, that inner strength, that source of power is inside of me. It's there, it's just waiting. So my do different. My do different is 10, 11, and 12. It's the maintenance steps. I've done all of the steps multiple times. When I got to 10, 11, and 12, as I said, it was highlighting and underlining and writing about it. I intellectualized it. They talk about, you know, that we need to utilize and not intellectualize this program. Um, I'm an educated person, I educate. <laughs> I'm a, I, I put it up here, right? And I don't allow it to come down into my heart, into my actions. So I knew this time that I was gonna have to do the action part of 10, 11, and 12. Cause you know, the, the glow wears off, right? That pink cloud of abstinence. I'm a, I've done a ton of diets. I'm super good at diets. It's exciting. People compliment you when you lose weight, you get new clothes, you get a lot of attention, but then it goes away, right? The glow fades, the mundane routine starts happening and then food calls. Life becomes unmanageable again. And I need that muscle memory. I heard that this weekend a few times. That muscle memory brings the intuitive thoughts to the forefront of my mind so that when I have that food thought, I don't have to turn it into fantasy. I can stop it because I have a mechanism to stop it. So the 10th step, right? It gives me a way to see my emotions when they're offside because they'll be offside. Right, just because I do the steps, just because I put the food down. Well, especially when I put the food down, my emotions come up. I feel them. I feel them. I get to see what I get hooked on, what it is that bothers me. And today I can look at it with a little bit more sense of humor and, and say to myself, wow, look at you're getting all revved up. This meeting is not going the way you thought it should. Registration is not going the way you thought it should. People are asking me questions in the info room I have no answers to. I get to watch myself get as excited as they do and get as stressed out as they do. And I get to remember, I get to learn compassion. I get to remember that I'm no different than you. So when I see somebody acting out, 
rather than sit in judgment, which is my usual practice. I can soften a little bit and remember when I was just like that. You know, when the person in the grocery store is pissed off because they have to wear their mask, I don't need to judge. I know what they're going through. I know it's fear. I know it's resistance. And my compassion can help maybe alleviate the situation or at the very least not make it worse. Because I know that all that acting out is, is to have a sense of control so that I can feel safe. All right, COVID makes me feel unsafe. And so I, at the beginning, tried so hard to get control and I did it in unhealthy ways. My food got noisy, my choices were not great. And I could quickly see by doing my 10th step that the fear was rising in me and that I, I needed to take a look at that. I, I, the other thing my 10th step helps me do is helps me see my old stories, right? My old stories of not being safe. I am safe today. I am okay. And if all of a sudden I become not okay, I have a way, I have a source inside of me that will help me be okay no matter what. The 10 step also has taught me to celebrate and notice when I change in life, right? Because these steps, that's what they asked me to do is to change so that I have a different outcome. Five minutes. I, thank you. And I can look at the dark side. So, so the 10 step allows me to do my gratitude and see where I've improved. That force is inside me and is allowing me to change. So I'll move along quicker. So the 11th step, once again, it supports that source inside me. It helps me to connect to that source. It's, it's a friendship, I'm told, right? And, and how do I develop a friendship is by getting to know that friend. So I've had to learn discipline and sit in my prayer and meditation and make time for it. It had to be flexible, yet consistent. I had to be okay with sometimes it only being seven minutes long, but it had to be consistent because I have no discipline. It has to be every day, right? Step 11 has taught me to be um, better at focusing. So Zoom meetings can be challenging. I can want to get on another device and not pay attention to you. I wouldn't do that if I was in the room with you, but it feels different when I'm sitting at home. So it's taught me to relax and listen. It's taught me that I'm a, I hold my breath. When I'm scared, when I'm angry, I hold my breath. I can't think when I'm holding my breath. So my step 11 has taught me to slow down. Don't panic, right? It, it says in the step book, it says, when we have a food thought, don't panic. Breathe, breathe and think and remember my commitment. Freedom isn't free, it costs something. The source of all the blessings I've received needs my support to stay alive, my support. The 12-step service, I heard about service. I heard it wasn't an option. I heard I have to do my part. I have to do my part because I have to guarantee that OA is going to be here because OA has been there for me. When I was relapsing for four years, my fellows loved me. They never judged me. They were there for me. There was a meeting for me to go to. I also know that strenuous work with another individual is what guarantees me my abstinence. Service is probably the key to why I am abstinent today. It is what kept me coming back to the rooms. 
there are service positions that are available for people that are not abstinent, I could still do my part and feel of value. I need to get out of my head. Service lets me get out of my head. My head, as I said, tells me stories and it tells me lies. And it tells me I cannot be successful. It tells me that I cannot be a normal body weight. I have never been, well, no, I was for maybe six months on a diet, a normal body weight. Um, I'd, like, I'd like that thought to go away, right? I'd like to be a, a useful person. I know that's my job today is to be useful to other people. And it makes me feel good. You know, somebody said on one of the shares yesterday, they've been doing service for most of the day and they felt amazing. It is true. It is amazing to help somebody else. I reinforce what I learned by helping somebody else, by taking somebody else through the steps. I didn't used to do that as a sponsor. Today, if you ask me to be your sponsor, I take you through the steps and they're pretty exhaustive. They get down to the root. I need to figure out who I am. I need to figure out how I tick. Service is not an option. It's in the step, it's in the 12th step and it's a tool, it must be important. And I'm sure it's probably in the concept somewhere. Once again, I guarantee that there's gonna be a place for me to come to. I get the joy of watching others recover. And as I said, it just feels fun. 10, 11 and 12 have given me ways to accept the version of me as I was back then. And as I am today, as I continue to improve. 10, 11, 12 helped me grow because I'm told I must grow. I must become more useful. And by doing 10, 11, and 12, I have a benefit that outweighs the cost today. I get the freedom from the food obsession. So keep coming back no matter what. Thank you so much for giving me this time. And have a good rest of your day. Awesome. Thank you so much, Shannon. Um, great to hear you. So um, I can hop in now and I'll share for 20 minutes as well. Um, maybe less. Um, hi, guys. I'm Nate. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and bulimic and um, really grateful to be here. And thank you um, to everyone who's putting on this convention. It's totally amazing. And um, just the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes. I don't even know the half of it, but I know it's a lot. And um, thanks to the people putting on this uh, workshop and thanks for um, the translators. Um, I know there's there's a lot happening um, to make this happen, a lot of service. So um, thank you and um, grateful for the chance to get to share with you guys a little bit. Um, I guess I'll just briefly tell you a little bit about what it means that I'm recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body. Um, and then I'll share a little bit about how I practice 10, 11 and 12 um, nowadays. Um, and uh, you know, most important thing I think I'll say is that if, if you're new or if you're struggling um, from compulsive overeating, we do have a solution here. Um, that's the reason we're having this convention. That's why all these lovely people are sitting on Zoom on a Sunday morning is because um, there's a solution and, and uh, we want to um, help you attain that solution if you haven't yet already. Um, those of us who have um, been given some freedom, um, keep that freedom by trying to give it to anybody else who would, who would have it. So um, yeah, I guess, so I said, I recovered from a hopeless state of mind and body briefly. What that means is that, uh, I'm a real compulsive overeater. Um, I'm not 
just a person who has a problem with food. I'm not just a person who um, likes to eat or tends to eat a little bit too much. Um, I'm a person who, um, uh, once I start eating certain foods or engaging in certain food behaviors, um, I really don't know when I will stop. Um, there's this, uh, my body is different than other people's. It's, it's different than say my family or my housemates. Um, and, uh, there may have been a time when I could have just one, you know, cookie or, you know, little bag of chips or whatever. But, um, my experience is that, uh, once I put those foods, uh, into my body, I experience this overwhelming craving for more. Um, and it sort of like hijacks my rational brain. And I find myself um, getting back up, going to the fridge, going to the bag, going back to the store to get more. Um, even though my brain is saying stop, my body is still like putting more food into my body. Um, and I, you know, I was like 200 pounds by the time I was 13 years old. So um, I really gained weight quickly as a kid and learned to hate my body. And, um, you know, I would, uh, like hide my eating a lot. I was very ashamed of my eating. I knew that it was different than other people's. Um, I tell one story just to kind of illustrate this, this craving that I'm talking about. Um, one time in like, uh, I think it was sixth, must've been seventh grade. Um, my friend and I each bought a box of donuts and, um, it was for like a fundraiser. And, uh, my friend had like two and like felt sick. And, um, I had like two while I was in his presence, but then, um, after school, before uh, my mom came to pick me up, I went and hid in like a ditch, uh, kind of in an alley kind of by the school and just like scarfed down, like, I think probably the rest of the donuts, um, uh, because I didn't want to like show up to my mom with like most of the donuts eaten in this box. So I just ate like all of them. Um, and then I went home and then like had snack and went about my day. And I'm telling you that story, A, because it illustrates that I was hiding and that I was ashamed. And I knew that my eating was different and B because what I was experiencing was the phenomenon of craving, which is once I put that substance in my body, all I can think about is getting more. So I wasn't, I wasn't physically hungry, right? Like my body didn't need more calories or more nutrition. I was eating to overcome a craving that was beyond my mental control. Um, and that's always been the case for me. And it, it still is the case to this day. I'm not, uh, I'm recovered, but I'm not cured. Um, so I don't believe that I'll ever be able to sort of eat um, those foods or do those food behaviors in safety. Um, and then uh, the hopeless state of mind that I suffer from is that um, once I'm like stopped and separated from the food, I always pick up again. So I have experience with relapsing with, um, you know, four months, a couple of times. One time I had nine months without binging and purging, and then I started binging and purging again, and it was just as bad as ever. Um, so I, I always go back to the food, um, even when I'm sober from the food, when I'm absent, when the food is down, then I start feeling crazy. I start feeling restless, irritable, and discontent. Um, and I'm just uncomfortable in my own skin. And I just don't, uh, I don't feel at ease, but food will give me that sense of ease and comfort. So I start to fantasize and obsess about what I'm going to eat later. That's going to make me feel okay. Um, to the point where it's like all I can really think about. And it feels like that itch like won't go away unless I scratch it. Uh, but then of course, once I scratch it, it gets, it gets itchier, it gets worse. Um, so that's the hopeless state of mind and body that I suffer from. And that really kicked my butt for a long time. Um, you know, from the ages of like 16 to 23, I was binging and purging um, constantly. Um, I'd have days where I probably binged and purged something like 20,000 calories. Um, so I, I would have been obese if I wasn't purging. Um, but um, anyway, I just sort of give you that little background just so you know that I kind of belong here and 
that, and, and if you relate to that hopeless state of mind and body, um, you know, I want you to know that there is a solution for that. And um, I'll describe that briefly here. Um, so essentially um, I've had what we call a spiritual awakening, um, which sounds perhaps a little spooky if, if you're new to this whole recovery thing. And, um, you know, it, uh, it doesn't need to be as spooky as it sounds, although it certainly can be. And I have had a couple of, uh, I've had many um, experiences that are kind of spooky, but I've also had just sort of ordinary garden variety, um, you know, change of personality that is sufficient to overcome this, this compulsive overeating. Um, and uh, really the evidence of that spiritual awakening is, is um, neutrality. So um, if you're new, um, we use this text. Um, one of the awesome pieces of OA literature is this text called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was, I was shown how to, how to work the steps um, using that text. And it talks in, this, in the 10th step on um, pages 84 and 85. I'll just read a little bit of it. Um, and I'm going to read it. It's going to say alcohol. If you can just substitute food um, in your head so that you kind of can translate it. It says, and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, for by this time sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. So um, I kind of wanted to read that for you guys because that's a great description of like the manifestation of this spiritual awakening, um, which is that I don't want to compulsively overeat anymore. So um, I always like try to stress this when I'm talking to people, especially if you're new. Um, when I was new to recovery, I thought that you guys who had recovered still wanted to eat, uh, but you just got really good at saying no, so that you would be in situations like at parties or weddings or holidays or whatever, um, where there was food or you're at a restaurant and other people were eating these sort of like you know, um, tantalizing foods. Um, but you just sort of, you know, scrunched up your willpower and like said, no, but you really still wanted to eat. Cause that's all I knew, um, was that obsession. I didn't know it was possible for the obsession to just go away. Um, but that is what has happened to me, which is like super weird and really cool. Um, like yesterday I went apple picking with some of my friends and, you know, they're, everyone's eating apple cider donuts and the, I didn't have any donuts, but that's not the miracle. The miracle is it didn't even occur to me. Like I was not there to get a donut. I didn't want a donut. I didn't sit there and watch other people eat donuts and think, mm, man, I wish I could have a donut. Those look so good. Um, they brought home some extra and they're, they were sitting on my table last night in my kitchen because my housemates are eating them. And like, I don't care at all. Um, that's what's really cool. Um, so that's kind of this neutrality that um, the 10th step is talking about. And um, that's what's available here. Um, if, <laughs> if I'm in fit spiritual condition, which is what 10, 11, and 12 allow me to do, um, I'm supposed to continue to grow in understanding and effectiveness. So, so if you're new, um, 
just know that like 10, 11, and 12 come after the first nine steps, um, you know, not for no reason. So um, if this feels a little like beyond uh, where you're at, that's okay. Um, so the way that I practice um, step 10 is um, I, I write nightly inventory. So I um, answer the questions on page 86 of um, the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, specifically, where were we resentful, selfish, dishonest, or afraid? Do we owe an apology? Have we kept something to ourselves that should be discussed with another person at once? Were we kind and loving toward all? What could we have done better? Were we thinking of ourselves most of the time? Or were we thinking of what we could do for others, what we could pack into the stream of life? So I have an email. Um, there's a guy who took me through the steps. I answer all those questions. I usually copy paste yesterday's email and then put it in a new email, send it to my sponsor answering those questions. Um, and then uh, that's really helpful for me because it allows me to continue to stay aware of where I'm resentful, selfish, dishonest, and afraid because those things like dominate me. So um, I learned through working the steps that um, my real problem is my self-centeredness. Like I'm just generally self-obsessed and thinking about Nate all the time. And what does Nate want and need? And that's why I feel restless, irritable, and discontent and uncomfortable all the time is because I'm obsessed with Nate. Uh, but if I can um, think about other people, what I can pack into the stream of life, um, if I can do resentment turnarounds and fear turnarounds, um, then I have a chance to get some relief from this bondage of self. Um, and I have to continue to grow spiritually. Um, and so step 11 is talking about um, how do I pray for knowledge of God's will and the power to carry that out. Um, so I get on my knees in the morning. Um, I try to follow something like what it talks about on pages 84 to 88 of this book. It's got some really good instructions. Um, it says we ask God to direct our thinking, especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest, or self-seeking motives. Um, that's sort of so that I can let God direct my thinking for the day about what I'm going to do. Um, I usually like flip that a little bit because it's hard for me to grip what it means to be divorced from self-pity. So I ask for um, to be grateful and to be aware of other people's needs. So then sometimes I'll like rehearse things that I'm grateful for because my life is amazing and I fail to notice it constantly. Um, so I will thank God, even just for like clean running water or like caffeine or just like a good night's sleep or being healthy or whatever. Um, I need to practice gratitude a lot because like self-pity wants to like creep in there and like my life is so awesome and I just don't notice it. Um, so, so like being intentional about practicing gratitude is pretty... Uh, essential for me. And then it says dishonest motives. So I asked for integrity and transparency in my motives. Um, and uh, that's really helpful. I've learned in recovery that I have to be rigorously honest. Um, so there's another guy that's my food sponsor. I email him every night also with like what I ate today. What did I put in my body? What were my emotions? What tools did I use? And a gratitude list. Um, and I CC some other people on that email just because it seems to be helpful. Um, but I have to like live in the light. I have to be rigorously honest about what goes in my body, but also like whatever's going on with me. Um, and uh, I've, I've learned that that's another sort of vital thing for um, being connected at all to God's power. Like God has just like burned it into me. Like, do not lie. Um, I've actually, I won't tell you the story, but I've been arrested for lying. Um, you know, it's on my record, like Nate lies. So um, and, and I, and, you know, addiction and, and, and food and compulsion, it's, it's all dishonesty, right? Like the delusion that I can control and manage my life, the delusion that I can uh, control and enjoy my eating, that I can, um, 
uh, just, you know, the dishonesty, the hiding things from myself. So I have to live in the light. Um, even if it's just like things I'm doing with food that I'm not proud of or, or whatever, anything, I have to be honest about it. Um, so that's really essential as well. Um, and then it says self-seeking motives. So the way that I sort of try to divorce from self-seeking motives is I pray uh, for God's will. Um, I pray for the desire to like make God look good instead of me. Cause I, I obsess with like building Nate's little kingdom about how Nate's going to be great. And how can I like, you know, Nate, Nate seeking, um, self-seeking. And so I pray that I would care more about God's, about God, about God's kingdom and about like myself. Um, it's sort of like the helpful visual for me is like, um, something in orbit. Like if I'm in orbit around myself, I need something with like more gravity than me to like knock me out of self-centeredness. So like God is like much bigger. So if I can get in orbit around God and be God centered, um, and like be interested in making God look good and what is God's will and what's God's plan for the day, um, then I get relief from self, but I, I need this like bigger gravitational force than my ego. Um, which, uh, is really challenging. So I, I really need to grow. <laughs> uh, my ego was deflated enough to get me to work the steps when I got abstinent, um, just over six years ago, but it constantly is trying to come back on me. Um, that's why I have to continue to grow spiritually by doing this stuff. Um, it looks to me like a lot of what this is asking me to do by praying for knowledge of God's will, asking for freedom from self-will, it looks to me like a lot of the growth is actually like deflation. It's like less of Nate and more of God and more of other people. Um, Five minutes. Thank you. Um, and it's like asking for things to be removed, like removal of defects, removal of obsession, removal of self-centeredness, um, self-seeking slipping away, right? Um, it's sort of like becoming less is the growth. Um, uh, just less interested in Nate and Nate's little schemes and designs. Um, and then as far as like, um, removal of self-seeking motives, I also found it helpful to like pray for other people. So I will like, um, pray for different groups of people in my life on different days of the week and things like that. And that just like gives me relief from myself. It's really nice. Like I just get like five minutes where I'm not thinking about Nate. I'm just thinking about somebody else and like trying to like bless them. Um, that's, that's really nice for me. So, um, that's basically high practice uh, step 11. I also get on my knees every night and thank God for a day of um, sobriety, a day of abstinence, a day I didn't have to make myself grow up. Um, and that's, that's helpful as well. Um, something about praying on my knees, that's just good for my soul. Uh, uh, it's been suggested to me to do, and I became willing to do it and I've done it every day and, um, haven't, you know, haven't purged, uh, in, in a long time. Um, okay. So step 12. Um, really appreciated, uh, what Shannon had to say about this as well, but, um, it, yeah, I mean, like it was also impressed upon me that like, you know, my sponsor, one of my first big book sponsors had me write down on the front page, like your 12th step is how you stay sober. Um, that's absolutely been my experience that, um, sponsoring other people works when everything else fails and everyone I know who is, um, recovered and happy over any considerable period of time is sponsoring others. Um, and people who, uh, are either not abstinent or in relapse or, um, just not happy about their abstinence are usually not sponsoring people. Um, so I do make it a point of like trying to, um, be available for sponsorship. I, I sponsor men and it's really cool to watch guys. I sponsor, sponsor other people, um, and like see that kind of like cycle, like paid forward, um, see the lights come on for other people. So 
if you haven't had that experience, um, I can't recommend it strongly enough. Um, and I always try to like make it a point of impressing on like people that I take through the steps that like they like should do so for others that like essentially what I see myself as doing is like training a sponsor when I'm sponsoring someone. Um, and I hope they're thinking that way as well. So that means I like to take people through the steps, just share my experience um, with each step, the way that I've learned how to do it, share my notes from the book, things like that. Um, I've also been uh, found it really important to like participate in service, like at the group level, you know, speaker booking, whatever, um, but also below the group level, like getting involved with intergroup and world service and things like that. And um, for me, that's really important because I need to like stay in the middle of the boat. Um, otherwise, like it'd be very easy for me to drift away from you guys and from this fellowship and think that I'm good and I don't need this and I got it. Um, and that would be, uh, or that I'm like too cool for you guys or something. Um, and that kind of delusion will um, definitely lead to my, uh, <laughs> it just would be terrible. So I really need to kind of stay in the boat, but I, the only way that I know how to do that is to, is to invest in um, making OA awesome. Um, and so I try to do that however I can. And it's also been impressed upon me that that is my primary purpose, um, that like the group has a primary purpose of carrying a message to a still sick and suffering compulsive overeater. But I, as a recovered compulsive overeater, like that is my primary purpose. Um, and that's what all the steps are always trying to get me to do is to, is to be of service to others and uh, be more effective in how I can, how I can give uh, and be of service. Um, it really does work when, when other activities fail. Um, so, uh, yeah, I have to continue to grow. Um, I, I need relief from self, uh, that is available here. Uh, so again, if you're new, um, or if you're, or if you're struggling or in relapse, um, we do have a solution. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, if you, if you stick around and ask somebody, um, how, how to do that, uh, there are a lot of people here would be happy to tell you how to do that. And, um, we'll be happy to share that solution with you. So. Um, with that, I will share the time. Um, so thanks, thanks again for the opportunity to speak. Um, all right, as far as the format, uh, we will now open the floor for a question and answer session. I think the chat is gonna be opened up. Um, yep. Please have yes. your question. Is that a yes, Phil? Yes, the chat is open. People could directly send me questions. Uh, some questions are coming in right now. So we could throw it to you guys, and I'll throw you some of the questions that we are receiving right now. Here we go. First question, here we go, is, can you ask the speakers how the steps 10 through 12 affected their relationships with a significant other? Shannon, you wanna go for it? Go. Yeah. Yeah, I have relationships with significant others. Uh, uh, it helped me recognize that in my romantic relationships by doing my 10th step and, and my 11th getting closer to a higher power, I got to see my part in my romantic relationship. I got to see where the pain was and what I could do to either lessen the pain or make the pain go away. 10, 11, 12 gave me the courage. I need my higher powers, that inner source of strength to be able to follow through on what's healthy for me. And then lastly, I, I, have, I have relationships with my children. I lost my children while I was in relapse. They were teenagers and I was no fun to be with. And so 10 has given me the mechanism to do living amends. 
I started by seeing my part in the behavior and then I can't make the past go away, but I can work on being that better person today. And uh, proof is here. I have my young adult child living with me for the last two years as they try to immigrate to the US. I was the call that she made. And as sad as she was, I was super delighted because that meant I had her back in my life again. And OA gave me that. I hope that answers it, thanks. Uh, yeah, I can. Um, I've been dating someone. I've been single, I'd say a good chunk of the time I've been in recovery, but I've been dating someone pretty seriously for um, a little while now. Um, uh, it is an abundant opportunity to experience how selfish, dishonest, resentful and afraid I am. So there's plenty of inventory to take. So that's um, helpful. Uh, it's an opportunity for spiritual growth. Um, I do pray with her and for her. I find that helpful. Um, as far as step 12, um, I've learned that I need to uh, kind of negotiate, um, figuring out what's going to, how can I prioritize her and give her the time that she needs in, in our relationship while also um, being on sponsor calls and, you know, um, going to meetings and things like that. So I've had to learn to sort that out that like, I don't just get to plan like a way that my selfishness shows up is like, I plan my life. And then I like sort of tell her what the plan is. And then she like, I'll like sort of fit her in, in between everything that I've planned uh, and that's uh, selfish and um, not like the way to be of service. So I found that um, uh, especially as we like sort of grow closer and possibly get married, like what I'll have to do is like ask her about her schedule and like work things through together um, instead of just uh, making unilateral decisions. So um, that's uh, a more opportunity for spiritual growth. Thanks. Right on. Okay. Next up. When in the thrust of an overwhelming craving, what tools have you used not to give in to it? <laughs> Want to go first this time, Nate? That's tough. Um, to be honest, I don't have a lot of experience with not giving in to overwhelming cravings. I have experience with giving in to overwhelming cravings or having cravings lifted. Um, I don't have experience really with like winning an argument with myself. That's like a knockdown drag out argument with myself where I'm like really want to eat, but just don't give in and like hang on by the skin of my teeth. Um, I lose that battle every time. So uh, to be honest, I, I don't know how to win a battle with a craving or an obsessive thought. I just, it, I've only been given a reprieve from the thinking in the first place. Um, sorry if that's not very helpful. I think it's super helpful. I think it happens, right? And then the other stuff happens too, right? When COVID first hit here and we were on lockdown, my food got super loud and I kept texting my sponsor saying, I don't understand, I don't understand. And her answer is always do more. So I talked about my practice of step, step 11 and what step 11 taught me to do in the meditation part was to not panic. So I've had those thoughts, overwhelming thoughts of food would make it better. And I stop and I breathe. Kind of my answer to everything these days, whenever I have that uncomfortable, anxious feeling, I know something up and I know I need to slow down. So that is number one. Number two is, I like that talk yesterday, nothing changes if nothing changes. So I have to say to my mind that 
we're not going to think about this and I have to get busy, right? I have to, I have to take an action to change the course of my brain's thinking. I have to shake it up really fast. So usually it's getting up because usually when I have my thoughts, I'm usually in a sitting position. I think I'm in a standing still position. So I have to like get moving and shake it out of me. And that seems to work for me these days. Thank you. Cool. All right. Uh, another question that we're getting a, a couple of questions all seem to be on a similar bend here. They're all asking about, um, do they want to talk about if you guys could talk about your 10th step practice? Um, they say, do you discuss with someone immediately when selfishness, dishonesty, and fear and resentment when they crop up as stated in page 84 of the big book? Um, so just give us an example of your 10 step practice. I can go. It's varied over time. You know, when I first in 2017, when I first decided to put the food down again, it was very regimented. It was every night it was doing, um, I have a, an, a, an app on my phone, the tool, the OA toolkit, and it has the questions. I'm pretty sure they're from the big book. And I would do those diligently. And the, the, it's lovely because that app keeps them. I have a record. I can go back and I can see the points at which I'm stuck on that are repeating. Uh, I can see the progress. Um, today, it's less formal. I've transitioned into that because I don't have the food covering up my feelings. I've transitioned into, I, it happens in my gut. As soon as my gut gets into a knot, I know there's something I'm reacting to and I can do it on the spot and I can see myself and I can analyze what am I like, what am I getting hooked into here and why? And is it real? For me, it's a lot of, it's not real. It's a, just a thought that's old thinking. Um, and then making amends. Sometimes I'm not so ready to make amends right away. That's still my block. I continue to work on it and it feels better when I do it right away. It feels way better when I do it right away because otherwise it builds, right? That knot in my stomach keeps coming back. It's not going to go away till I take care of it. It's what I know today. I don't have food to make the feelings go away. So I have to clean up. So that's my take. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I think my nightly emails are helpful in terms of stuff that's more immediate. Um, step 10 also says, and when we're wrong, promptly admitted it. Um, I'm ending up in some kind of like argument with my girlfriend I've usually found that the faster I can figure out where I'm wrong and promptly admit it things tend to go better if I can like just focus on like okay I think she's wrong about all of these things pretty sure I'm right about all these things but if I can figure out where I'm wrong and say that my life will be better um uh, and then also, um, like I've, I've had to like go back and like apologize to people for being rude to them in stores or like um, security guards or just whatever, like people out in the world. Um, sometimes I've had to like, I'll like have some kind of interaction. I'll realize I was selfish. And like, as I'm like walking away, like, like um, Shannon was saying, I'll have this kind of like bad, like kind of feeling in my gut. I'll feel like sort of emotionally hungover. And um, sometimes I'll actually hear like ringing in the back of my head, like, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. And so then I'll have to like kind of circle back and like apologize to somebody. Um, and again, like the sooner I can do that, the better. Um, and then I'll also like share, I try to be pretty vulnerable with my sponsees as well, or just like other people in recovery. So if I'm experiencing shame about something or 
um, you know, whatever, eating too many mints or like exercising compulsively or whatever it is I'm doing, I will try to be super transparent uh, about that with my sponsees as well. Um, and so like, I, uh, I, it's been pointed out to me that like doing a 10th step is service, especially for a newcomer, because I'm showing them like, here's how you practice recovery. Um, so, yeah. All right. Speaking of 10 steps, it says, I find it really difficult to write at night. Does any speaker have a suggestion on how else to write a nightly 10 step 10? You don't have to do it at night. I know, I know people that do it midday. They do it after dinner. Um, you know, there's a lot of suggestions in our literature. And I think sometimes I have to, you know, like I was saying about my 11th step, it, I had to be flexible. I was, I was learning this new tool, but it had to be about consistency. So for me, I think it's important that I, I keep using that thing in frequency, right? Not infrequently, but often more often. And so find, find that sweet spot, find the best way for you to do it, but do it right. It's like the fourth, they say, doesn't matter how you do it. Just find a way to do it. Some people do their meditation at night rather than the morning. Some do it in the middle of the day. It's um, be flexible, but do it. Right on. Nate, anything on that or no? Um, I find it helpful to do it at night just because it's, it's sort of like brushing my teeth. It's like, I, sort of like let go of the day so I can sleep well. Um, I will say sometimes I wake up in the morning with a little bit of that, uh, that kind of like emotional hangover, like someone I need to apologize to, a dishonesty that I haven't gotten straightforward with someone about whatever it may be. And I need to like address that right away or I'll, I'll shoot my sponsor like a follow-up email, like, oh yeah, also this other form of selfishness or dishonesty. Right on. All right. Um, so now uh, somebody's asking about the origins of freedom isn't free. Uh, to be followed up with, uh, the question is, I have a tremendous mental block when it comes to reading the big book with the word alcohol. What is your suggestion to get past that block? Uh, the origin of freedom isn't free. I might have to hand that over to somebody else. I I, I think I've seen it in the big book. I, I, I'm, I'm really not sure. You know, I... We hear so many things from so many people that, you know, nothing that comes from me is original and nothing probably that came from that person who told me was original. So I'm sorry, forgive me. Maybe if you do a Google search, you might find the origins of it. It was a two-parter question. (laughs) Well, the big book and using and the language. Yeah, when I first read the big book, I wanted to rewrite the big book. I spent a lot of energy fighting with people about the language in the big book. And then I came upon a wise person that said, let it go. Right. You have to start cooperating and and stop fighting and finding reasons for not to relate to it. I have to find reasons to relate to it so that I can see the solution and I can apply it to my life. The pain is in the resistance. So try not to resist it, right? When you have that block, try to let go and let God and, and, and ask God to open, maybe ask for some willingness to uh, not get hooked on that word. Oh, um, there's just a clarification. They said it's, it's, they don't want the origin of it. They just, 
want to hear where you heard from it. Where, where did you hear it from? At, at a retreat in 2017. Okay. All right. There it is. All right. Next question. Da, 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 da. Here we go. Mm -hmm. All right. You mentioned having a spiritual awakening in step 12, and it has helped you attain neutrality with food. Could either of you elaborate on that? You go, Nate. Um, elaborate on the spiritual awakening or on neutrality with food. I think I talked about neutrality with food like a lot. Um, it, it just means that I don't really, like I obsess about lots of stuff, but usually not food. Like I obsess about whatever work I think I need to get done or whatever thing I think I need to fix in my relationship with my girlfriend or my friends or the groups I help to lead or whatever, um, or my body image, but I don't obsess about food, um, which is awesome. Um, in terms of the spiritual awakening, um, there's a great appendix in the um, book. It's appendix two. It's um, I have the fourth edition. It's page 500 and something. Anyway, it describes um, what a spiritual awakening is. It just says it's a personality change sufficient to overcome our addiction. Uh, it's page 567 in my fourth edition. Um, and so essentially means that I have a different reaction in the way that I approach life. Um, in my experience, a lot of that has to do with humility and willingness. Um, I guess I'll just say, I, I forgot to say this when I was talking a little bit about um, 10, 11, and 12, is that um, to the degree that the posture of my heart is, okay, God, whatever you tell me to do, I will do it. I'm willing, thy will be done. I'm willing to do whatever it is that you would have me do or be. Um, to that degree, I feel that God is close and real and life is okay and I'm okay. And to the degree that I am fixated on trying to stay in control um, of my life uh, or that I'm sort of revolving around self-will, um, God feels far away or not real and I feel miserable. Um, so a big part of the spiritual awakening is something like wanting to do God's will. Um, yeah. Okay, Ricky. All right. So let's see. Next up. Um, Shannon, you were reading from a book before. What, what book was that that you're reading from? Yeah, like I wanted to, I think I might've quoted the for today. Okay. For today. All right. Thank you. Yeah. And people, mm -hmm. sorry, people were asking about freedom isn't free. There is that good reading in the for today, November 2nd. Uh -huh. All right. Thank you so much. Here we go. All right. Good, good, good. All right. So next thing they're talking about meetings. Do they say, uh, what kind of meetings do you find uh, help your recovery? Can you talk about some of the meetings you go to? Um, Nate, they're curious about men's meetings. Do you, do, do they help your recovery? And I guess vice versa, what meetings help? Um, sure. So I would say, so a couple things. Um, First of all, for the record, don't take anything I say as an endorsement of anything particular kind of meeting, anything like that. Um, I will tell you that I do listen to the Vision for You meetings. It's a phone meeting. It happens on um, every weekday morning, and there's recordings that I listen to frequently. Um, but just know that OA as a whole does not endorse any particular meeting of any kind, and don't take the fact that I like a meeting as any kind of endorsement um, from OA or anything like that. Um, I also go to a young people's meeting um, that's on Zoom in my area. 
Um, and then I go to a big book meeting um, on Friday evenings as well. Uh, the main thing I would want to say about meetings is that one thing I don't hear stressed very often, but was impressed upon me and I think is very important for my recovery is the concept of a home group, which is to say, there is a meeting that I am at every single week, no matter what, I plan my life around it, I show up, I do service for that meeting. Um, I try to follow up with newcomers from that meeting if I can, although it's hard on Zoom. Um, I make it a point of taking ownership of that meeting. I don't just sort of like I'm a giver there, not a taker. So I show up with the intention of trying to be useful, not with the intention of like, oh, well, this happens to fit my schedule today. So I'll drop in because I feel like it. I do that with some meetings, but I need to have at least one meeting that is a home group. Um, and uh, that's all I'll say about that. Thanks. Okay, dokie. All right. Next up. Let's see. Mm. Alrighty. All right. Ah. Please provide some experience, strength, and hope for someone who's struggling in step nine and needs to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> yeah, nine, eh? Nine is necessary. Nine, nine was a good way for me to humble myself. And I was one of those people that had that experience that they talk about in our 12 and 12 where somebody will not forgive you. So I've been humbled ever since that moment as I continue to search for acceptance. Remember my quest? I would say any step that I find really, really, really hard I need to ask for help from all the people, all my fellows and my higher power to really help me get through it. Because anything that I have fought for, anything that has been that painful to do when I come out on the other side, it is pretty indescribable. I feel pretty superwomanly. Um, and I feel a whole lot of relief. I didn't realize I would feel so much relief. I didn't realize how much all that pain was contributing to my desire to pick up the food to make the pain go away. I did not realize how much it contributed to that. I could not predict how good it would feel to be done. And I could not predict that I would also have then a desire to continue to keep it clean. And I also didn't understand the effect that I would have on other people in my life, because as I exhibit the ability to own up to my mistakes and make restitution, they get to witness it and they get to do it too, right? We have a better home life because my children have watched me apologize to them. I'm not the all powerful mother. I don't lord over them. I'm just another human being that happened to give birth to them. So they get to see me as human and then they get to practice it. And that's, that's, that's the happiness I get. That's what I got. Thanks. Nate, step nine. Um, yeah, I guess I appreciate. Yeah. I mean, how free do I want to get? Um, how, how comfortable do I want to be? Do I want to still be in fear? Um, also, I've found by doing a lot of amends that uh, you actually make people's day most of the time. Um, and it really is like an act of service. Like people really like it gives them hope just that someone in the world would like apologize and try to fix something. Um, 
I don't know, I may have just been very lucky, but I've, I've, I've had a lot of people be like, wow, thank you so much. Like that really, you know, or they even witnessed me making an amends. Um, so it is an act of service, um, you know, so, um, and also praying for the people that I'm making amends to. Um, yeah. They're yeah. awesome. They're like, there's so much relief on the other side of making amends. Like that's the good stuff. Like don't, don't get up to nine and stop. Like that's where it starts to get good. So. Yeah. Okay. Here's a question. How many people do you sponsor and how often do you speak to your sponsees? Wow. Eh? It's always tricky, right? When you get into this stuff and then people get into comparing, but I, you know, I'll, I'll tell you for me, it's been an evolution. I've been a sponsor since the uh, mid to late nineties and I did it all kinds of different ways. And some ways I felt better about it than others. I often felt inadequate. So today, because I do intensive work today, I <laughs> intensive, there's lots of questions to go through and there's lots of literature to go through and there's lots of deep digging that I make my sponsees do. So my max for working the steps is two people at once. I can take on an additional two if they're not going through the steps. And then um, it truly depends on the individual as to frequency. My, my, you know, people that are relapsing or newcomers, it's more frequent. It's every few days, sometimes daily. Um, people that have been in for a while and are maintaining and doing well, we do a once a week check-in, but I don't think there's a wrong way. Once again, do it, just do it, right? I'll pass over to Nate. Yeah, um, I currently have, I guess, five guys who've been through the steps that I talk to once a week. Um, I'm not actively working with anyone who's brand new right now. Um, and then I sponsor a couple of other guys outside of uh, OA. Um, but I don't usually talk to anybody more than once or twice a week. I talk to a couple of guys like twice a week. I really want them to call other people. Um, and then I'll, I'll meet with them for an hour, 90 minutes or whatever to do big book work or just to check in, um, to check in on 10, 11 and 12. That's what I do with the guys who've been through the steps. I just sort of ask them how 10, 11 and 12 are going every week. Um, yeah. Okay. And now it's time for our lightning round. We're just going to ask you a couple of questions and you got to answer them real quick because we're about to be wrapping it up. All right. So next up, here's a question. How do you switch the old beliefs for new ones? Practice, practice, practice. Sounds good to me. Nate? <laughs> uh, I suffer and then I change when I get willing to change. <laughs> mostly, mostly suffer. <laughs> Very good. All right, uh, next up. What is your abstinence and or plan of eating? Hard one, eh? Three meals a day life in between. Me? Abstain. Uh, my, oops, sorry, sorry. I didn't finish. Sorry. I had a late thought. I'm done. <laughs> no, what was that? Absent? Uh, I'm saying? I abstain from my alcohol foods, no matter what. Okay. Nate? Yeah, uh, for me, abstinence is not binging or purging. Um, I don't, I can't answer my plan of eating in a lightning round, but it's basically like, you know, eat real food, and not too much of it and reasonably frequently. 
Right on. All right. Thank you so much. Um, here's a question. Can, sh can Shannon and Nate leave their contact information? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'll type my email in the chat or my phone number. Okay. All right, cool. All right, well, let's see. Mm, all right, that seems to be, is there any last minute questions? Just taking a look here, anybody? All right, thank you, Nate, for putting that number. I, I would just like to take a moment, Mr. Yes. Phil. Yes, of course. I have to call you Mr. with the formal You can call me Monsieur, Monsieur Phil. Monsieur Phil. I would really love to thank our French interpreter, Vasilisa. She's a delight and she works hard. I cannot imagine what it's like. And it's so appreciated, I'm sure, by the uh, French speaking people on the call. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Vasilisa. Cool. Yes. Any other shout outs before we, we wrap? Okay, we have a chance for one more question. I'm waiting. One more question. Here's your chance to get in on the Q&A. If you got a quick question, throw it in. Anybody in the audience? Now's your chance. And also we'll accept uh, French questions too. So if you have a French question, throw it in there real fast. Last question. All right, if not, then, uh, all right, we'll throw it back to you too. Do you have any shout outs or anything else that you need to say before you wrap? Just thanks again for having us. Um, right on. Thanks for, thanks for everyone in the service putting this on. Right on. All right, well then I will throw it back to our host. Oh, you're our host, right? So there you go. Uh, yeah, I'm supposed to thank everyone who attended this session and we'll now close the meeting with the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change, change things and, and the and wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not mine, be done.